Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, from 1 John, and from the letter to the Ephesians. Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Matthew 13, he put another parable before them, saying, Kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And from Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And from 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. And from Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God. Well, we're in the middle of celebrating our nation's independence. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about that, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about what that means for us, that we're called to be honoring to those who are in leadership over us. Uh, but a lot of us, you know, are not really called to, like, specific political action, and, uh, um, and a lot of churches are not, in our church in particular, we don't take sides. We, you, you notice that we don't take sides. We're not into taking sides. Uh, we're, and in our individual lives, what if we're not involved in, uh, in heavily in politics and that sort of a thing? We vote. We, we love our country. We, we may honor the emperor or the president uh, uh, and the government, uh, but otherwise we live rather unspectacular, ordinary, everyday lives. Are we kind of out of the scene, out of the scene of action? Are we missing the boat? If we really want to change the world, do we need to get involved? Well, no, not necessarily. See, political involvement may have its place, but there's, this has never been the primary way that God used to change the world. When God wanted to change the world, he used people who had no political clout, no political influence. In fact, they were often oppressed by a culture which did not understand or respect them. And yet, over the course of a couple of hundred years, the whole landscape of Europe and of Africa was changed because of these, these people, these followers of Jesus who were able to bring about tremendous, uh, tremendous change in the world. How did they do that? How did they do that without any political clout and with no political protection? What was their secret and can we capture it today? Because sometimes we want think we want to make the world, uh, we want the world to change too. We want to make the world a better place. What was their secret? 
I'll tell you what it was, and we're going to talk about it today. Their secret was love. Oh, yeah, that was it. It was just one small thing. Love. Love changed the world. These were people who had been so captured by the love that God had shown to them, especially through the coming of Jesus, the love which filled their hearts and made them brand new creation, that they then became a loving community which was utterly different from anywhere around the world and which then loved people no matter what. Revolutionary love was God's secret plan to change the world. Love in the life of Jesus' followers as a body together and love in the lives of, 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 of those people as they lived out in their neighborhood. So I want you to think about how we can change the world today no matter what government we ever have, no matter what direction anything ever goes, the secret of really changing the world is love. Revolutionary love is God's secret plan to change the world. That's really the meaning of this little parable which Jesus uh, uh, said and which Tammy read for you. The mustard seed and the leaven parable. Did you listen to it? He put another parable before them, it says, saying, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. And he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus came announcing a brand new kingdom. His was a political message. It was a political message about a, a brand new king and a brand new kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is going to be different than any other kind of kingdom you've ever thought. My kingdom is going to be like a, a mustard seed. It's going to be like yeast. And he had other parables about the kingdom, but particularly those two I'd like you to think about. Well, what is, what is the image of a, of a mustard seed? Well, the mustard seed was the smallest agricultural seed they used. It was a very small seed, and it became a very large plant. What's his point? He says the kingdom of God starts small, obscure, inconsequential, and yet it, it looks like nothing, but in time it grows to something. This is the, the principle of small beginnings, unlikely starting. It's a principle of a handful of people saying, I wonder if we should have a church in Cave Creek, and maybe they'll let us meet there at the Buffalo Chip, and maybe God will just getting planted Deep, uh, small, obscure, small beginnings, but it grows large. That's the principle of the mustard seed. You see, the kingdom of God doesn't just start with a big bang. In fact, a lot of churches, uh, well, uh, don't get off topic, but a lot of churches that are started nowadays, it's like you have to start big, Right? You've got to get a, a massive amount of financial resources, a massive amount of, uh, of, uh, of people resources. You've got to get a great big splash. And I actually tried to start a church that way once, and it died. <laughs> because, in my opinion, I didn't honor the mustard seed principle. So that when we started this church, we started the very opposite of the spectrum. Six or eight of us, without any income, without and, and no one on paid staff or anything, just got a job cleaning pools and, and just saying, hey, let's just start small and get planted in the ground. That's the mustard seed principle. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, so, but also he says yeast. What's the image of yeast? 
Well, those of you who ever cook bread, which is probably not many of you anymore, but my wife used to cook bread. I used to have every day, I had homemade bread and homemade jelly and a cup of coffee and butter. That was it. And I don't get it anymore. I still get the homemade jelly. I still get the butter, but the bread's not homemade because it's just too tempting to eat too much of that bread, right? So every so often, Donna will make some of that bread, but we, we decided that it was probably not good for us. So, but uh, but you put a little bit, she put a little yeast in there, and the yeast would cause it to rise. What's the principle of the yeast? It's the principle that God works from the inside out, not the outside in. That God changes inside out. The kingdom of God, he said, is within you. Everybody thought the answer was going to be with a new political structure. Come and lead a government to overthrow those nasty Romans and let us claim our, 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 our land and our dignity. And Jesus says, that's not the kind of kingdom that I'm trying to build. I will change everything, but I'm starting in a way you never would have imagined. I'm going to start in the hearts of men and women. I see that the, the ultimate problems of the human race are not found out there, but in here, inside the hearts of human beings. I will change from the inside out. And so that ultimately, Jesus, like a seed planted in the ground, was killed on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And out of that seed then birthed new life which came to him in a resurrected body. And as the message of his, his uh, life and death and resurrection was proclaimed, people then responded and the seed of God's word was planted in their hearts and it began to sprout. And they began to be new kind of people. And new kind of people began to uh, uh, spread all around through the acts of love and relationships that they had with them. And then the world began to be changed. It was modeled, of course, in Jesus' life. He was born in obscurity in a remote corner of the world, grew up with peasant parents in the no-name town of Nazareth, lived an obscure life, never written up in any newspaper, hardly any references to him outside of the biblical documents, a few, but very few. In terms of what was happening in the world that day, the big news was not this guy that got killed on the side, side of Jerusalem. That happened all the time, all the time. The big news was what was happening on the international and the global scale, the big power of, of Rome. No, Jesus died in obscurity, but his life brought about change. It was modeled in his life. It was modeled in his ministry as he went welcoming people who were on the outside looking in saying, come on, everybody who will follow me is, is welcome. He welcomed them. He welcomed people who had bad past. He welcomed people with, um, um, who uh, had no religious background like his anymore. He welcomed them all if they would follow him. He welcomed them. And then on the night before he was crucified, he said that it says that on, in the 13th chapter that he wanted to show them how much he loved them, how much he loved them. And so while they were observing the Lord's table, the Passover meal together, he got up and he went to the basin and he poured water in the basin. He took off his outer garment, he put a towel over his waist and be, or over his arm and came and began to wash the disciples' feet. Simple acts of love, which embarrassed the disciples, 
in part because it's always embarrassing when someone washes your feet, but particularly if it's someone whose feet you probably should already have been washing yourself. They were used to maybe having servants wash their feet, but not having their master. So Jesus said, after he was done in John chapter 13, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Simple acts of serving love. And in the same conversation, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. How, was the, how were they to love one another? The way Jesus had just loved them by getting down on their knees, humbling themselves, and serving people. That's what Jesus did. That's what he expected his followers to do. And that's exactly what they did. See, Jesus defined his ministry in terms of love. It was modeled in his life. It was modeled in his ministry. And it was modeled even in the church that he established, those disciples. He commanded his disciples to love like he loved. And that is exactly what he did. Like mustard seeds and like yeast, they literally changed the world. For a lot of us, if we stopped complaining or maybe watching our Facebook feed quite so much and complaining about everything out there, thinking it's either good or bad all the time, if we just started to love the people that are in our lives, it would take longer, but it would be more effective, and it would be the Jesus way. They literally changed the world. Revolutionary love was God's secret plan to change the world. It's not complicated, but it's not easy, is it? And it is the Jesus way. When you and I simply learn to be loving people in our families, in our uh, workplaces, in our neighborhoods, we are making a world-changing difference. One life at a time. One act of love at a time. So let's be a loving community. Let's love one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's uh, lay down our lives for one another. Let's bear one another's burdens. The Bible, the New Testament, is replete with admonitions about this new community of how they are to relate to one another. All these one another's, which are acts of love. And we need, lest we forget, these were not people who were naturally friendly to one another. In fact, in many ways... The gospel turns natural-born enemies into brothers and sisters. That's what it does. That's what it did. If there aren't any people in our life that we love but we don't always like, <laughs> we're probably not loving enough people, right? Within the church, they had Jews and Gentiles together. People have been trained to, di to disrespect one another and look down on one another and caricature one another. And yet these same people had a common commitment to Jesus, the one who loved them and gave himself for them. And they discovered that they were brothers and sisters, that they had an identity that went deeper than their ethnic identity. 
And in the same way, men and women who had very distinguished and defined roles, and women had very few rights and very few opportunities, did not even have, um, um, uh, their witness was not even protected in court. These women were now given a place at the kingdom of God, at the, at the table, not just because of their husbands, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So we see women exercising even places of leadership in the church. For example, Priscilla and Aquila, early disciples of the apostle Paul, who planted a church there in Corinth and were the main leaders of the church. And Priscilla's name is listed first, not Aquila's name. Aquila was the man. Priscilla was the wife. Why? Because she was the one everybody knew. She was the one who apparently exercised more leadership. Yes, there, men and women, rich and poor. So Paul writes to a man named Philemon one day, and he says, Hey, I found your servant. His name is Onesimus. He ran away, and I'm sending him back to you, not now as your slave, but as your brother. It totally changed the structure of the world. When love began to work its way, life by life, person by person, man, woman, Greek, uh, Gentile, Jew, uh, uh, the uh, slave, free, all these people becoming a brand new family. What Jesus said began to happen when he said, by this all men would know that you are my disciples. Not by your great doctrine, not by your pure ethics, not by your judgmental attitude, not by your big buildings, your fancy programs, not by how much money you make, but rather by what? By your love for one another. Well then, how do we learn to live a life of love? We need to do it. But if you're like me, you'll go into a place like this and you think, yes, I want to be a more loving person. And you'll go right out there and you'll find it's a lot easier to love sitting down in the church service. <laughs> than it is driving down the street, living a life of love. And that's why I had time to read for you that text in 1 John. How do we learn to live a life of revolutionary love? I'll suggest two things that will help you to apply this message. But listen to the text again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the other verse I should have had her read, the next one, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Two principles out of this text. If I want to let uh, becoming a more loving person, first of all, I've got to let the revolutionary love of Jesus grip my heart. I've got to let that picture of his love grab hold of my heart and fill me and change me from the inside out. You see, the word love is used more than 40 times in this little letter that John wrote, the letter we call First John. It tells us to love one another, and it points, to us, uh, points us to the example of God's love for us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, he says. Love is 
from God. You see, you and I want to love, but our love runs out. We try to manufacture loving thoughts and feelings and actions, and before long, we can't. We give up. We, we run out of gas, so to speak. No, before we can love others the way that Jesus loved us, we need to let his love so enrapture our hearts that we can't help but love people around us. Like a mustard seed, the love of Jesus must grow out of the soil of our hearts before it can bloom in our lives. And that's one reason why we need to regularly be reading the scriptures, be thinking about the Jesus story, and especially come into places of worship. So we can be reminded of God's incredible love for us. So that we can find ourselves lost in wonder, love, and grace, as the old hymn says. We need to see that kind of love. Only when we will see his love for us will we then share his love with others. Yes. On this point about letting Jesus' love grip our hearts, there are two things I'd like you to notice. First of all, God's love is a being kind of love. It's grounded in his character. It's who God is. God doesn't just decide to add love to his life. God, at his very essence, is love. In fact, I tend to think that the very essence of the Trinitarian dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a dance of love. That God is co-eternally a relationship. Heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there, there's a loving relationship. And it's out of that loving relationship that a, a, an earth is born. Just like out of a loving relationship between a man and a woman, a child is born. And that earth was born. And it was, uh, it was uh, meant to be a place where love would flourish. Because love, when you truly love, wants to be shared. That's why a couple who get married generally think, we love each other so much. We want more love. And love leads to another baby, right? It just does. And you find that you don't have less love now, like you have to divvy it up further, but you actually have more. And if you have another baby, more. And then, 30 years later, grandbaby, way more. <laughs> Why? And yet, in the midst of all that, so much sacrifice, so much giving up, so much serving, the correlation, the paradoxical correlation that by giving love and giving it, we receive so much more. See, God's love is a being kind of love. Verse 7, love comes from God. Verse 8, God is love. Repeat it again, verse 16. Love is not just a choice that God makes. It's the ultimate essence, the fundamental part of his character. He cannot help but love. It's who he is. That was what motivated God to call Israel to himself in Deuteronomy 30, 40, 30, excuse me, 4.32. He says, it was my love that motivated me to call you. In Hosea 11.1, 1, it was God's love that made him refuse to let them go, though they were so disobedient. How can I let you go? I love you so. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, it was God's love that said, I will make a new covenant with my people. A promise ultimately fulfilled with that final faithful Israelite, Jesus himself. It was, what was it that God caused God to send his son to the earth? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what did Jesus say was the greatest expression of love? To lay down your life for your friends. 
And so therefore in 1 John 3 and 1, just a few verses before this section we're reading, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. That's why when you come to church, my hope is that whatever else you get, you get a picture of God's love. That's why no matter whatever else we do on a Sunday morning, we always end with the Lord's table, which is the ultimate expression of God's love. Everything God does is motivated by love. Love is not a human invention. Our best intentions fall short. God's love is a being kind of love. His love is based in his character. Uh, and, uh, and this is why we need to see God's character of love. We need to get grasped. We need to become gripped by the love of Jesus. But God's love is not just a being kind of love. It's always also a giving kind of love. It is expressed in sacrificial action. That's why it says this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world so that we might live uh, through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sacrificially, we would say, sent his son as the atoning sacrifice, propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins. Yes, God's love is a being kind of love, but it's also a doing or a giving kind of love, a sacrificial kind of love. It is selfless, not sentimental. It's not related to feelings, even a great personal cost. God gives. How did God show his love? He gave his son. Have you ever had to give your child away in one way or another? Some of you have given your children away uh, to the service, and you thought, I don't know what's going to happen. And yet you gave your child away. Some of you have had to give your children away to some kind of uh, terrible disease and death, perhaps. And you had to let it happen. Oh, my goodness. I remember one of the hardest things I had ever done to my life at that point was when my three-month-old child needed life-threatening surgery when he was he's 30 now. But when he was three months old. We discovered he had a lung condition. We didn't know what the problem was. And at that point, I grabbed this little tiny baby, and I was holding on to him. And I was feeling so uh, overwhelmed. And I remember when the nurse came to me and said, it's time to take him. And I placed him in her arms, not knowing if I would ever see him again. Hardest thing I'd ever done. That's what God did for you. That's what God did for you. That's how much he loves us. And how did Jesus show his love? He gave his life for us. How do we learn to love? Don't look to your friends, your family, your feelings, your television show. Look at the Father. Look at the Father. Let his love grip your heart. See him sending his son into the world. See him watching his son suffer the ridicule of foes, and the misunderstanding of his friends. See him praying in the garden when he says, Father, please don't make me do this, but saying, I'm going to have to let you do this. And he says to you, not as I will, but thy will be done. See him while he's beaten and bruised and hanging on a tree. See him condemned when saying, why have you forsaken me? That's how much God loves you. Is it any wonder the heavens grew dark and the earth shook? These were the sobs and groans of a, of a grieving father who loves his creation that much that he himself was willing to give himself on the altar of human sin so that we could see 
and be brought back into his family. That's his love. God's love is a being kind of love. God's love is a doing or a giving kind of love. That's why Ephesians says, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may somehow get a glimpse of how wide and leap, wide and deep and high and long is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all understanding. Yes, we will never be the loving people we need to be until we've been so enraptured by the God who loved us that much, who saw us in our wickedness and our sin, and instead of condemning us, took the condemnation for his own sake so that he could give to us his life. I need that story because that love, story of his love, is what changes me from the inside out. So I want to surrender my heart to that love, to reflect on that love, to receive God's love, and then I will naturally share it with others because my love tank will be full of God's love for me. So, number one, let revolutionary love grip your heart. And then finally, let revolutionary love guide your life. Dear friends, he says in the 11th verse of that text, since God so loved us, we must also love one another. You see, what's unique about the New Testament, uh, well, it's true in the Old Testament as well, but especially the New Testament in this context, admonitions about our lives. Is there, you know, any, any culture could tell you love people or be nice to people or don't steal. They all do that. All religions do that kind of a thing. But Christianity grounds all of those things in the God who loved you, who gave himself for you. Let God's love fill your heart and then love one another. Yes, we need to let God's love fill us as it should. That's why it says in Ephesians, another related text, uh, I think I had to read this one for you too, 5, 1, and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I want to let God's revolutionary love grip my heart and I want it to guide my life. Love is the most important character quality of the Christian. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, to love. The greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor. He summarizes the commandments by saying, love God and love one another. And what is it that will never pass away? Love. The greatest of these is love. And what's the most important fruit of the Spirit? Love. Live a life of love as a dearly loved child. We will love others as we ourselves have been loved. So I encourage you as we go out from here and as you live your day and this week to say, Lord Jesus, fill my heart with an appreciation for how deeply loved I am by you. And let that heart flow out that heart of love flow out from me to others so that I can practice that love. And so in that book of Ephesians, he tells them they're to love one another in their church family, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. They're to love one another in their homes, Ephesians 5. And they're to love one another in their world and in their work. When you work, it says, work as unto the Lord. Live a life of love. 
If you want to change the world, practice revolutionary love. You never know what kinds of acts of love may really change the world. Some of you can probably point to certain happenstance events in your life that severely affected your life for good or for ill. One for me is when I was getting ready to go to uh, the university, trying to decide a school, I went to visit one of two, uh, two schools on one trip. I was a, I was a senior in high school. And, um, um, and I went from one school to the next, which was going to be the one I went to, ultimately, Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. And uh, uh, there was an admissions counselor whose job it was to kind of show me around. Right? She, was kind of a, she was a recruiter in some ways. And I think about this because my daughter-in-law, before she moved from Azusa up to Portland, she was an admissions counselor. So I think about her and just her job of trying to recruit people. Well, this admissions counselor came uh, and, and began to ask me questions. And I was a senior in high school. I knew I was going into the ministry. And in talking with her, uh, she discovered that I had some musical background, you know, that I had played the trumpet in the band. But in those days, I never sang in front of people. Never. Never. I could play the guitar, but I was sure that while I had good musical abilities, I had a very ugly-sounding voice. And to this day, I think I was probably right, you know. So I didn't. Sing. So, but then she's asking me these questions, and when she hears that I had a musical background, she says to me, you ought to try out for our male chorale. It's the best group on campus. 45 or 50 men that sing together. Try out for that group. I said, no, you don't understand. I sing in the shower. I sing in uh, the church congregation. I sing when I play my guitar all by myself. I don't sing for other people. You know, I'm not, that's not me. That was it. Now, I don't even know this girl's name. I, don't, I still have no idea who she is. She has no idea to this day what effect that conversation had on my life. Because I went back home that summer, and I had decided that that was the school I was going to go to. And in the course of the couple of months or so between that conversation and actually showing up at school, the Lord began to talk to me about that conversation. And in my mind, I felt he was saying, uh, Lord, uh, Steve, why don't you want to sing? Why don't you want to sing? Why won't you try for that group? And of my honest response is, well, because I can't sing. And Lord seems to say, well, of course you can sing. Why won't you try? What's the real reason why you won't? You, Lord, I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of looking bad. I knew people who sang in our church who shouldn't have been singing in church, Right? And I never wanted to be one of them. You've all had it happen when you're watching someone sing and they're just making a mess of things and your eyes go down and you're feeling that sense of, oh, Lord, help them. <laughs> right? I didn't want to be that person. So I never did it. And I realized that what I thought was humility was really an inverted source of pride. And so when fall came, I signed up for an audition because I just knew I needed to do it. And so I sat in that office and sang the song. They stopped me before I was done. I made lots of excuses why I was, should never make it into a group, but I just thought I should do it anyway. You know, I talked too much, as you already know. I did that even then. And uh, I walk out of that room, and I felt there, at least, Lord, I had let go. At least I had, you know, let go of my pride and done it. That was it. Never even checked to see if I made the group. Didn't even look. That wasn't the point. 
So I'm at school on Thursday. It starts. And then on Friday, I go to my English uh, literature class or composition class, I guess it was. And a guy that I had met during orientation the week before says to me at that class, he says, Steve, your name's Steve, right? Gilbertson? What? Yeah. I said, yeah. Uh, where were you yesterday? I said, I mean, where was I? Inquire. Why weren't you there? I, I'm not in the choir. We called your name on the roll. I thought, What? So right after class, I go and look on that sheet, and there's my name, Steve Gilbertson, bass. I had gotten into that group. And that's, that, that event utterly changed the course of my life. Utterly changed. I would have been a pastor because I was already moving that direction, but I would not have been a musical pastor at all. But having gotten into that group and, and learning how to, to be a part of that experience was such a huge change for me. The point is, though, that it probably would never have happened except for an admissions counselor who made a significant difference in my life that gave me the opportunity to do something I have loved doing for my whole life. You never know which act of love you, you do really plants fruit. That's why you throw that seed out as plentiful as you can. You throw it everywhere. And sometimes it's trampled on. Sometimes it bears little fruit. But once in a while, 60, 80, 100 fold, and lives are changed. That's the way the gospel spread around the world. Not through political initiatives or government edicts, but through simple everyday people who had let the love of God grip their hearts and guide their lives. So they became like little Jesus people, little Christians, Christians, little Christs. Let's go out there. Having been filled with his love, let us share it to everyone. What do you think? All right. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of this worship gathering. Thank you for the love which you've shown to us, especially as we see evident on a hill outside of Calvary. Thank you for your love. May we receive it, and may we give it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.